and welcome to Weird Comics History Classics starring Chris and Reggie. We're doing a little something different this week, aren't we, Chris? Yeah, we are going to take uh, three of our segments from when we were part of the main podcast, where and we discussed uh, Doom Patrol creator Arnold Drake. We're going to meld that into one and hope it makes, a, makes for intriguing listening. Yeah, we originally ran, the first part ran on May 29th, 2016, uh, then it went for the following two Sundays, but they're sort of embedded at the rear end of some pretty long podcasts, so you may not have heard them, or you may not have gotten to them. Uh, I wouldn't blame you one bit, sometimes I don't get to the end of the pod, that podcast myself when it runs so long. Um, but some of the information on those podcasts are incorrect, so we want to correct it up front right here. Uh, you can email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And you can find us through the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed every Sunday morning, usually uh, you know about six to eight hours before the main podcast comes out, and that's on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, blah, 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 everything else. So we hope you enjoy it, and I hope it makes sense. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us directly. Uh, you have anything else for them, Chris? Nope, but uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the classics. Yeah, make sure you keep it doomed. Hello, and welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history every week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. This week, we have... Chris kind of gave me a gimme here. He gave me a little treat. Uh, decided he wanted to give uh, do a subject in my wheelhouse. Uh, what are we going to be talking about this week? We're going to be talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Arnold Drake. Yeah. Now, who is Arnold Drake? <laughs> he was a, he, he's an author, writer, just a journeyman. He, he wrote to write. He wanted to be paid to write, and so he did. Yep. Um, it, it's, it, it's funny, in, uh, in school here, I, I, I was taking a writing class, and the teacher was asking how many writers were in the room. And everybody raised their hand. Sure. Uh, and then she said, uh, you know, a lot of us think we have the, the next great American novel in us. And asked who had the great American novel in us, and, and if you didn't, put your hand down. And everybody put their hand down. <laughs> it's like that's when you find out there is a difference between being a writer and saying you're a writer. Yeah, and yeah. Ar Arnold Drake was definitely a writer. He, he was about it. He went to work. He put, you know, a hand to keyboard and uh, cranked out a lot of pages of text. Absolutely. Uh, and he also uh, left uh, some great creations in his wake as well. Uh, some enduring ones as well, uh, to, to be said. Uh, the Doom Patrol, especially. It's probably his most famous creation. Absolutely. And uh, also, uh, you know, uh, Dead Man, he's certainly known. Yeah. And uh, uh, sort of kind of known. You had Stanley and his monster. Yeah, I, I think, I think <laughs> this podcast might have mentioned him the most in its... A few episodes that we've had. I think this is the third time we've brought up Stanley and his monsters. So obviously there's a running theme, but I don't want anyone to think that this is a popular comic at any point. No, we are the uh, co-presidents and only member <laughs> yeah. of the Stanley and his monster fan club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, his his work wasn't limited to DC. He also, uh, you know, there was a little movie a, a year or so back called Guardians of the Galaxy, and yeah. he was the one who uh, put the original Guardians of the Galaxy together. It didn't really resemble what it is now. No, but, not really, but the name was there and the idea of space and the concept, yeah. and, you know, running away from space law and stuff. So there, there was a lot... Uh, that did carry over, but it was four guys or four aliens, and they each had different 
Yeah, that one was, it was like a crystal, and there was a Charlie Twenty Seven or whoever. Yeah, yeah, it was like an Android. It was, it, you know, to be honest, it was sort of esoteric. It was a more high, hard sci-fi book. Um, I don't know if I'd run around recommending it. Really, it's kind of crazy, but hmm. it's uh, definitely something very different than the Guardians. I think a lot of people are familiar with. Absolutely. So uh, Arnold Drake was born March first, nineteen twenty-four. <laughs> His parents were Mark Max Druckmann and Pearl Coe, and Max Druckmann was a furniture salesman who was quite successful and they lived in a good area of Queens, New York called Forest Hills in the uh, in the May Parker neighborhood, right? Eh? That's right. Wouldn't have been wouldn't have been too far from where uh Peter and May ate their waffles or whatever in the morning. Uh, their wheat cakes. So, so, that's right, wheat cakes uh, <laughs> in Spider-Man's neighborhood. Um he was the third of three boys, uh, his older brothers Irvin and Milton, they became songwriters and Milton Drake wrote a song called Mare Dotes. Do you know this song? I do. I just I've never seen it. I've never seen the title of it written. I, so. know, I didn't. I didn't know it. when you look at the lyrics of it. The, the the joke is that it's phonetically written out. The whole the whole verse. Yeah. So it's mares, you know, dozy oats and little lambs lead ivy. But uh, that was probably the most famous, I think, thing they ever did. Uh, Irvin also did uh, some musicals during the '40s and '50s. Definitely during the '50s that I think got some acclaim, but he wasn't up there with Sondheim or anything. So this is a talented family, is my point. Um, these are not, uh, you know, three accountants. They all went on to do something artistic. Yeah, they were and, all in the uh, creative field. And obviously changed their name at some point from Druckmann to Drake, which probably was just a uh, entertainment thing, probably a good idea in those days especially. Yeah, easier to be noticed with a more, with a, with a one-syllable last name. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if Druckmann has any kind of ethnic connotations that they might want to uh, assuage, but... Uh, I think it might. Could have been, could have been. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, Arnold, he, uh, he was drawing and he was writing and drawing comics as early as uh, age 12 in 1936. Yeah. He had uh, contracted scarlet fever, and uh, that kept him bedridden. Yeah, for almost a year. That's, that's insane, so, isn't that? It's kind of crazy, kind of lost a year of his life doing this. Yeah, and uh, he uh, he had asked his mother for uh, for some contract bridge scoring pads. Yeah, which uh, that's bridge is a card game. Yeah, but, yeah, but and, the uh, pads come and they're kind of oblong, so they're sort of comic strip sized already. Yeah, like the newspaper strips. Yeah, exactly. So so that was his plan was to use that as his outline for his, his base for making comic strips. Yeah, and he uh, he wrote and drew a, a little strip about a mutiny on a cruise ship. And uh, as he continued, he found that the uh, the word balloons got bigger and the drawings got smaller. So that uh, it kind of uh, organically yeah. pushed him towards uh, writing rather than drawing. I should probably become a writer, but let me tell you, as we'll find out uh, later and probably actually in the second part of this podcast, he didn't give up drawing entirely. No, no. But, uh, you know, he, he definitely concentrated on the writing. I also find it funny, and, and he's talked about, he talked about this in interviews also, the idea of mutiny on a cruise ship. You know, has there ever been mutiny on a cruise ship would there you know why would there be mutiny on a cruise ship it's like his total misunderstanding of what a cruise ship is <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a pirate ship <laughs> yeah they, these are these are people going from island to island scrounging for resources you know they kind of go out there they got the lobsters already so uh yeah the band's entertaining them and they got the buffet I, of course i would love to see this uh at this modern epic of story oh yeah <laughs> yeah, that would be that would I've, I've be never quite seen, interesting. I don't even know if I don't know if it exists anymore. I've never seen a reproduction, but I'd, I'd love to see it. 
Absolutely. And uh, outside uh, outside the confines of his uh, his bedroom, uh, more fun comics number seven, which uh, that's the is that the first DC comic? More fun is the first true what considered the DC comic. You know, it was national national before back that, then, but yeah. it was yeah. I mean, that was the first ever thing they published. And this was the first book that had all new material. That's the, the that that was the weird juxtaposition that I hope to create there is that, uh, you know, while he's inside drawing comic strips, and that's the, uh, you the, know, the only graspable goal for an illustrator, or one of the few ways an illustrator could make a good living in those days. Right outside is a brand new way those guys can make a living, absolutely, uh, and, and writers as well. Uh, sure. Just uh, kind of bubbling outside his his his. Forest Hills apartment, I like to think up the block at uh, Shlomo's uh, <laughs> chocolate shop, soda shop. You know, the soda jerk is pulling sodas and selling Western comics, and here comes a crazy comic down the pike about lumberjacks and ballerinas and whatever the hell else. But it was all original uh, stuff. So you know, it was opportunity. It was it was the opportunity. He was he was coming into age right as the opportunity was beginning, and uh, he would exploit that going on. But first, of course, uh, like most. People of his age in that time, he was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1942. Mm. I'm pretty sure, may have been 43. It's uh, I couldn't quite get a date, but he would have been 18, 19 years old. So it would have been perfect timing for him to go uh, fight the uh, back the hordes of the Axis powers in Europe and uh, Asia and Africa. But he uh, didn't actually go overseas. He no. stayed in America, and as I understand it, he was in Rhode Island putting on instructional theatrical performances for GIs. Uh, I assume it was about, you know, wear your rubbers and uh, keep your guns clean and, you know, try not to... Basically, stuff about staying away from prostitutes, let's face it. That's really all they want to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the main, it's the main, you know, they, they just want to keep everyone from getting syphilis. Yeah, stop. we don't want you to get itchy. Yeah, so I, I, I assume that's a lot of what he did. And from there, he did his time there, I think probably just the flat four years. Uh, in fact, I would almost guarantee it because he went to college and then grad school on the GI Bill. He went to the University of Missouri, which was the best school for journalism at the time, got a journalism degree, and then he went to NYU to get his master's. Uh, that's also, this also places him squarely back in New York City right around 1950. Yeah, and he uh, created what is, in some circles, considered to be the first graphic novel. Yeah. Um, it was called It Rhymes With Lust. It was like a crime noir type of thing, and it starred a, uh, I believe it starred a female uh, protagonist. It did, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, it, oh, go ahead. I think her name was Dusty. That was the thing, or Dusty. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was written with uh, Leslie Waller, and they uh, created a pseudonym together as Drake Waller. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, you know, shows as one writer. It was drawn by a, a fellow named Matt Baker, who was a, a black illustrator. Yeah, and uh, pretty okay. rare for even for a black illustrator to get work in those days. So for him to sure. be such a such a brand new thing, you got to uh, wonder if they knew. I wonder. <laughs> if I, I don't know, but he, he he's a fine illustrator. You know, uh, for the time and and for any time, if you if you get your hands on that book, and you know, we'll tell you about it how you might be yeah. able to do in a minute. Uh, it's it's really worth just the art alone. It's really striking and very great in that that mid-century style. Oh, it's really good, really good stuff. Uh, they uh, actually had to convince uh, a, a company called Saint John Publication to uh, to publish it, mm -hmm. and they had uh, started a uh, what would become an ill-fated series uh, called Picture Novels. It wasn't a graphic novel yet, 
And uh, there were only two books published. It was this one and another one called The Case of the Winking Buddha, which was not by Arnold Drake, so we don't need to go any further in that one. And, uh, no, I, I just saw, I saw some pictures of it uh, while doing research for this, but uh, I didn't really dig too deep. And uh, Arnold Drake uh, described this as stories illustrated as comics, but with more mature plots, characters, and dialogue, which is so ahead of its time. Yeah, this, this, this is the answer to... Sort of what, you know, uh, Frederick Wortham was complaining about, you know, about comics being for kids. And he's like, no, they don't mm-hmm. have to be. We can make adult stories. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's they remarkable. can be. Yeah, they can be aimed towards the adult and young adult market just, uh, you know, just as easily as, as to the children. And he was a young adult himself, so. Yeah, he was know, probably he, writing he was, what he, he wanted to read. Market. Yeah, he was writing yeah. what he'd want to see. Yeah, and uh, this uh, went out of print for a long time, as one would imagine, and uh, was reprinted in 2007, right around the time of uh, Mr. Drake's death by uh, Death blah, 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 by Dark Horse Comics. Yeah, and that's pretty much the ver- that's the version I have. I think that would be the version most anybody would have sure. today. I, I, it's really worth getting if you can. It's interesting. It's really it's, cheap too. Yeah, it's it's not expensive. It's uh, it's it's a nice fast read. It's kind of a crazy story. You can tell that he's a young man, you know, kind of getting his writing chops up. <laughs> he, uh, it's sort of like five movies into one. It's like a Western. It's like a romance. It's a uh, mining town. There's just there's just so much going on just shoveled into this thing. It's, it's got some, like, sexual situations, but it's not pornographic, obviously. But it's important to say, though, that this isn't people with word balloons. Uh, yeah. This is this is pictures with text next to them, so it's. Uh, I think there might be some balloons, but it's mainly uh, text throughout. So, this is this becomes the question: What is a graphic novel? When you know when does that line blur between comic and graphic novel? If you know pictures and text, well, every children's book could be a graphic novel, Certainly. if that's the case. But anyway, so that that's the debate. That's why we say it's considered by some to be the first graphic novel. I think it definitely is a. Arguable entry right there. Sure. If nothing else, it's a good bridge. It certainly is a bridge between the comics and the graphic novel. Yeah, I would would agree with that. Or even like a bridge between comics and like Playboy comics and the Harvey Kirkman stuff from the 50s and 60s. This sort of, it showed that there was a market for adults that wanted to read comic material. Uh, Yeah, and it was more than, it was more than just a caption. It was, it was a descriptor. Yeah, it was, and these are fully realized stories. These aren't. This isn't just like a. Uh, I mean, it rhymes with lust is a very complicated, complex story. To be honest with you, it's. Uh, yeah. I you know I, I hesitate to say it's a necessary piece of literature, but it's uh, you know. It's a fun diversion. It's a fun diversion. I, you know, if you can get your hands on it, and uh, you know, it's it's worth checking out. So uh, not long after that, he uh, met Bob Kane. Bob Kane was his brother Milton's neighbor. I guess they probably lived in Manhattan, I would have to guess. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, but through reading Bob Kane, actually, I mean, from what I understand, Arnold Drake was picking up a little bit of work here and there, uh, drawing, a, writing a funny animal, a gag strip, uh, maybe contributing, you know. I mean, in those days, comics would be usually two or three stories and then a bunch of one-page things. Features, yeah. So I have a feeling he did a lot of stuff like that. Uh, probably did probably did some of the tech stories that comics needed to have in those days for the two you know get the right postal rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just me kind of conjecturing, but anyway, he was doing a little <laughs> bit of work before he met Bob Kane. But when he met Bob Kane, he did his first mainstream comic book work, um, 
which was the return of Mr. Future for Batman 98 in March 1956. It features Batman and Robin meeting Jules Verne in the past, uh, which is a story I've never read. But Me either. I would love to would love to get my hands on it. After he did another one for uh, the House of Unexpected that he's talked about, which is the, the two assassinations of Abraham Lincoln. Yes, uh, I saw a little bit about that. And, and and apparently he had a thing with the story where he really thought he was turning a certain uh, thriller genre on his head by doing it. You know, I'll tell you, a lot of these comics are tough to get, and it's because of Arnold Drake's pedigree. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if people know that Drake or, you know, certain guys, Bill Finger, uh, it would be another one, wrote these, because often they were uncredited. Um, yeah. They, they, spike, they spike in price. So uh, I have not seen a lot of these. Uh, some of his later work in the 50s is collected, and uh, we'll get to that right now. Yeah, uh, some uh, titles at DC that uh, are commonly uh, written by Arnold Drake are uh, Tommy Tomorrow, which I have very little experience with, but I know there was a brief resurgence, yeah. or at least a, a mention of him in the in the early to mid '80s. I, I, I think they tried to pull him out uh, in like a, you know Adam Strange's domain or something like he was, hmm. he was around in some space adventures. Uh, it was a pretty stupid backup story. Uh, you know, Tommy Tomorrow sort of says it all. He had a jetpack, laser gun, shot aliens. Uh, as a matter of fact, Arnold Drake hated writing this one and had made up a little song. <laughs> every, every time he had to write it, uh, the song, I don't know what the actual uh, melody was, but this, the lyrics were, Tommy Tomorrow, Tommy Tomorrow, I hate writing fucking Tommy Tomorrow. <laughs> so There he, you go. But, you know, he wrote it a lot. He wrote a lot of them, uh, and this was a, a job. This was This was... What he was told to do, and or the, uh, the opportunity he was given, more more likely because he was a contract uh, worker, he could have turned it down if he didn't feel like eating. And that he didn't have a, he didn't have a Twitter that he can complain on. Exactly, he could, exactly he couldn't jump on Twitter and say, you know, they're not they're not being fair because I can't write my uh, magnum opus about Batman or whatever. So he, he wrote that and uh, a couple other ones that are a little little better known. Yeah, and I think uh, before we move on, we could probably put that Tommy Tomorrow song to Merzi Dotes. Probably. Tommy Tomorrow, <laughs> Tommy Tomorrow, I fucking hate Tommy Tomorrow. Yeah, man. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> he also uh, wrote uh, Challenges of the Unknown. Yeah. Which uh, they've been uh, semi uh, ubiquitous uh, troop yeah. in DC. They come and go. I'd but they're always anybody somewhere. Anybody that knows their DC stuff knows of these guys. If not, you know, this is, this is a Jack Kirby creation that really. Uh, you could see as a prototype for Fantastic Four and later stuff oh, that, certainly. Would, that would come. But a lot of people wrote it over the years. A lot of people drew it over the years. It's a DC property. They even brought them back in the new 52 as a yeah, uh, DC Comics show. Presents. Yeah, yeah I, I can't really remember. But even through the years, there was a there was a Challenger series in the 80s for sure. And they did the, there was the Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale one that went about eight issues. That That's was really right. good. That, well. that was a big resurgence that they really wanted to do. So, you know, they show up here and there, and, and you Go also around. see them in the general, you know, background milieu of the DC. Yeah, in the miasma. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there was also, uh, yeah, this is uh, the celebrity comics here. Yeah. Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis had their own comics. Yeah, and let me tell you. These are incredible comics, you know. They, you know, readable copies are not too expensive, mm -hmm. and they they are just so off the wall and madcap. I recommend. I'd imagine anyone that likes a wacky comic, you know, if you if you if you like your comics very seriously, it's not going to work. But if you like to have like Jerry Lewis, you know, I mean, the thing is, his movies are already wacky and his stand up, 
But in the comics, when Jerry Lewis wants to do something, he makes a Jerry Lewis robot. You know, that's that kind of thing. Or or, or Bob Hope had a uh, <laughs> he had an alter ego. I think Bob Haney actually created it, but a super hip, which was his like superhero hip fifties guy. You got to see oh, these things to believe. Oh, it, that's folks. great. Uh, yeah, I, some of my favorite comics. <laughs> And uh, Mr. Drake also wrote a story in Showcase Number One, starring one of my favorite superheroes, yeah, uh, a Fireman Farrell. Who, who who doesn't remember Fireman Farrell? You know. Oh, he was in Rebirth, right? Literally, I remember one of the stories is he saves a cat from a tree. I mean, that's literally one of the stories in that book. There's three stories about Fireman Farrell, and one of them is he saves a cat from a tree. Like this is is this a, really a comic book? If it's are we, are we really seeing this? Uh, he also wrote a, a pulp crime mystery novel called The Steel Noose in the mm-hmm. 50s. Uh, you can get that. I actually, when I did some research, you can actually get it on Kindle right now, I think for a buck. Oh, uh, wow. But it's, it's, someone is reprinting it. I have, I have an original copy somewhere. It wasn't tough to get. And it's a pretty serviceable pulp novel. It's uh, well written. It's not tremendously written, but it's, it's engaging. And, you know, if you're a fan of Drake, you might want to uh, check it out. So the point, the point being, Chris, the man worked. He worked. Through he was 50s. a writer's yeah. writer. He yes. Was, he, was, he was not sitting around waiting for work to come to him. He was pursuing and working and, and writing what he could get his hands on, and that eventually led to a moment in late 1962, early 1963, when uh, DC editor Murray Boltonoff went to Arnold Drake and asked him to create a new superhero team that would uh, probably serve in some kind of challenge to Marvel's Fantastic Four or maybe even the Avengers by that point uh, and what came out of that was the Doom Patrol mm-hmm. and that's probably the most famous creation of Arnold Drake's and that's why we are going to leave yeah, this episode his, arguably his most uh, enduring and endearing creation uh, was, was created yeah. this is the uh, Doom Patrol and uh, they made their first appearance in an issue of My Greatest Adventure, which uh, was up to that point filled with uh, stories of ordinary heroes, like uh, firefighters, police officers, yeah. stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, this was a time when the superhero genre was was kicking back into gear. And uh, editor, you have to remember, uh, this is after Fantastic Four has debuted. Yeah, you know, so I think that was that was jump started this. Yeah, uh, definitely. Because uh, they say, uh, you know, a lot of people compare the Doom Patrol to the X-Men, but it seems more apropos to compare them to the Fantastic Four in, in a lot of ways. Definitely. Uh, you know, in their, not only in their number, but in their structure. Uh, yeah. You got the, the robot man is the thing. You've got negative man is Johnny Storm. Human Torch, yeah. Uh, you know, Reed, I guess, could be sort of a... Probably the chief. The chief, and, you know, when he gets his automatic wheelchair going, he can, he's got all kinds of gadgets and tricks, and Rita would be the woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's the girl, yeah. You know, as, as, as per the time, she was afflicted with being a female, so... Yes, she uh, was a comic book girl. And uh, the editor of My Greatest Adventure, Murray Boltonoff, Murray Boltonoff uh, he uh, tasked uh, Drake was creating a superhero team. And uh, he, uh, Arnold Drake and Bob Haney, um, yep. big guy on uh, Teen Titans, are one of our favorites. Uh, one of our one of our all time favorites. They uh, they hold themselves up in a hotel room over a weekend, and uh, uh, come Monday morning, they had the Doom Patrol. Yeah. And uh, these were these were strange heroes. These were heroes that did not like being superheroes. They wanted to they wanted to live normal lives, but they were they were cursed with 
with these fantastic powers that uh, were also uh, for 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 three of them uh, they were physically debilitating. You yeah. know, uh, they they cost them careers, they cost them normal lives, and uh, a lot of it was a. Uh, was kind of woe is me, but uh, it was something that wasn't really tried in comics before, so it was a it was a novelty. I mean, frankly, I always wondered why Rita Farr didn't just go on. You know, I think in the first issue they make it seem like she can't control her size changing, you know, her power to become giant Rita Farr. But later on yeah. in the series, she does. Why didn't she just go back to Hollywood? Uh, Giffen sort of dealt with that in uh, his run. in the pre Flashpoint run, pre Flashpoint yeah. run that that she was sort of ostracized as a freak. But you know, re- in reality. Yeah. Think of all the, but anyway, think of okay. all they'd save on special effects. I'm not saying, you know, people would be like, "Please be in my, you know, attack of a 50 foot woman." You know, absolutely. But uh, anyway, you know, would you mind wearing this dinosaur costume? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Think about the Godzilla. But you know, we, we let yeah. that go because this is a comic book story. Absolutely, and like we like we talked about earlier, they uh, a lot of people do compare this to the X Men. It's you know, they're they're freaks, they're outcasts, they're they're led by a dude in a wheelchair. Um, they did launch within months of one another. The Doom Patrol did come first. Yep. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say that they launched a little too closely to really say one copied off the other. But uh, one of the things that I did find out was that Drake, uh, that Arnold Drake and Stan Lee, were they were said to have been close friends at the time. And, they you know, they might have had lunch. They might have had coffee and, you know, just discussed what they were percolating and maybe... And maybe unintentionally, you know, glean something off of one of the one so, another. So then, as now, the industry was a bunch of people that knew each other. You know, they kind of worked sure. on the same stuff, and sometimes they would cross companies. Although back then, usually you would it was DC or Marvel, and then if you wanted to do your Charlton or Harvey work, that was fine too. But just like today, you know, you can do image. Yeah, your Ooh, image comics your and you'd be exclusive to Marvel or DC, but you can't work for the uh, other big company. For the other biggie. Yeah. But, you know, they knew each other. So, you know, in later in life, Arnold Drake did start to think that maybe there had been some uh, collusion or some, you know, he, he, Stanley took something from this. Personally, I don't think so. I really don't. I think that they took inspiration from a lot of popular culture at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's impossible for me to say. I don't know either of their minds. I wasn't there. But it it just seems way too close. I think it's just a coincidence. Yeah, I think they, they were it was both three months, wasn't it, or two months? It, it was it was a month or two. Is that one was June, one was August, or something like that? Or one like was that. September. So, I mean, and you know, with the lead times, there's there's just really no way. <laughs> and 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 you know, they're so similar. <laughs> is part of the reason I don't think it's a copy. You know what I mean? Because because if they were. Yeah, they would try to hide it. Yeah, exactly. You would try. You would try to mask it a little. But anyway, that that's all just conjecture. Yeah, and uh, and they, they were they were know. both they were both heavily influenced by the Fantastic Four, though. Both teams. Yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah, uh, Fantastic Four. So they were Four following was, was that the template of of the family of uh, superheroes. So right around this time, uh, after Doom Patrol came out, which uh, eventually did take over My Greatest Adventure with issue 87, I believe. I don't remember. I think so. Uh, and it became Doom Patrol. Arnold Drake saw fit to write a letter to the uh, Erwin Donenfeld and the DC executives explaining that they were about to be taken over by Marvel. Uh, This is 1963, so this is one year after what we would call Marvel proper, a year after Fantastic Four debuted and then X-Men, and I think, like you said, we talked last week, the Thor was out. Yeah, Amazing Fantasy was 1962. Yeah, okay, so yeah, so so Spider-Man is out. At this time, um, without going too much into Marvel, they had a, a publishing constraint where they can only do eight titles a month. Uh, if you want to know more about that, again, read The Untold Story of Marvel by Sean Howe. 
But also, they were just starting out. They were, they were not the powerhouse. At this time, Marvel was... Uh, sorry, DC was outselling Marvel by 5 to 1 in most cases. And in other cases, it wasn't even, you know, Superman and Batman. They weren't even in the ballpark. So uh, Arnold Drake really sent this letter at a strange time. And I'm going to read part of the letter to you now. This is the very beginning of it. The entire letter was seven pages long. And I, I know, neither have all seven pages... <laughs> nor do I want to read all seven pages. <laughs> but uh, I will start out, so he wrote, What Marvel was attempting to do began to be apparent about three years ago. They, or rather he, talking about Stan Lee, were bringing sophistication to the comics. The anti-hero was lifted from the hardcover books and slick magazines and brought to the kids. The present idiom was applied, not the idea of Bobby Soxers and swing music and Betty Grable, etc. They combined iconoclasm with non-sequiturs and in-jokes, and got what we call, part of what we call, camp. They succeeded for two reasons, primarily. First, they were more with what, what was happening in the country than we were. And, perhaps more important, they aimed their stuff at an age level that had never read comics before in any impressive number. The college level. Let's say ages 16 to 19 or 20. That second fact is important in, in view of the fewer titles that Marvel publishes. They could afford to aim all, with the exception of the romance books and the westerns, which, by the way, are now swinging, or beginning to swing also, of their titles at this age level and pull an equal number of readers from lower age groups happy to tag along. If Marvel had the number of titles that we have, they could not use this approach across the board. I believe if Marvel continues to add titles and finds it wise to begin aiming at the 12 to 10, 10 to 8, and 8 to 5 market, they will not apply the same orientation to these books as to Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, etc., which was wrong, because they did. They expanded their line, and it just became one huge uh, continuity. I ended the, the letter, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, he, I think what he's talking about at this point is, you know, even before 62, Ant-Man had come out, and things were starting to kind of shake up a little bit even throughout the 60s at Marvel, but... Uh, you know, he, the, the prescience, you know, the ability to see Absolutely. far ahead that this was going to become a new fan base for comics and that comics weren't just something you read, you chucked out. People were collecting them. Uh, College-age kids were into it. Later on, colleges would have Stan Lee come out and speak to them. So, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's probably the, the <laughs> most striking piece you take away from that is that Marvel was aiming for an untapped market. For comics, and, uh, yeah, yeah, for for comics, and uh, you know, it might you know, and I'm sure at the time a lot of those readers were lapsed, probably lapsed DC fans. For sure, and that's still true today, many times. <laughs> so <laughs> he, awesome. he did that, and I have to think that didn't ingratiate him too much with the uh, Marvel brass. I mean, the DC brass, but you know, they they kept him around for a while longer, still doing Doom Patrol, which which enjoyed. Decent popularity and had a rabid fan base. And, you know, the Doom Patrol really was uh, DC's most Marvel book Absolutely. at the time. So it's, uh, I think he saw the writing on the wall well before DC did, and they should have because they got their meat lumped by the end of the decade. <laughs> uh, almost exactly about the same time the next year, he wrote a screenplay and produced a movie called The Flesh Eaters, which is considered among the very first gore films that was filmed out on Long Island, not far from. Uh, well, Arnold Drake lived in Manhattan, but not far from, I think, some of his friends. They basically filmed it at somebody's house on a Hampton Beach. Uh, it had very uh, bloody scenes for the time. This was sort of a, a change in film at the time. There were a lot of 
different gore films and shock films that came out. Uh, the Wizard of Gore, I think, was 65 or 66. A uh, hmm. couple other films at the time that were pushing the envelope. And uh, as you dug up, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters, but they, he changed the name to avoid confusion, which I think is fascinating because yeah. Night of the Living Dead, you know, the, the, the phrase Night of the Living Dead itself came into contention later, and uh, someone else owns that. Oh, wow. And and Romero had to use uh, just the dead. If you notice, his movies became Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, yeah. But the, the living dead is owned by some somebody else. So, uh, all what's in a name, that's what they say, arose <laughs> by any other name, right? Hey, you got to wonder. I mean, we could, uh, they, they could be, there could be a successful image comic called The Walking Flesh Eaters right now. Exactly. <laughs> it's very, not, uh, very true, yeah. Well, that's it's what not come through. So yeah, yeah so this you know he was definitely a journeyman. You know he's doing comics, he's doing movies, he's doing everything. Yeah, he uh, another uh, another creation he has for DC is uh, is one that uh, that you and I are the co-presidents and only members of the fan club. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Stanley and his monster, and uh, this is a. Uh, this is an odd one. I mean, it's it's a sur- it's like a surrealist comic. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a boy deemed not responsible enough to care for a dog by his parents. Uh, he finds a monster. The monster, I guess, Stanley. He's not only irresponsible, but he's also kind of a dope. He's not very bright. Uh, <laughs> the monster convinces Stanley that he's a dog. A big, big magenta dog. Yes, uh, <laughs> it looks like a looks like a bundle of pillows. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as that as that series goes on, uh, the cast fills out with a leprechaun, a gnome, an almost invisible man, and a ghost. The ghost of Napoleon. Yeah. Which you know, it's just. It's it's weird and, and ahead of its time. It, it's it, not really, something... it really was berserk, you know. Uh, you know, this is just a guy letting his mind go wherever he wants it to go. Very similar to his Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis comics, but these hmm. were a little more honed in there. Uh, yeah, it's like a living dream here. <laughs> it, it almost is. Yeah, it's almost like somebody describing their fever dream. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. And Napoleon actually had uh, he had the hots for Stanley's mother. That's right. So there you go. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned this because it's just uh, another another illustration of the wide appeal of uh, Arnold Drake. Um, you know, uh, this is something that we see today with you know the family movies where you know there'll be jokes told that only the parents get, and then there's jokes told that the kids will find more appealing. And this kind of strikes me as something similar. It's a uh, it's appropriate for all ages, where there might be something a little bawdy, but it's going to be more. Uh, it's going to be the, the kids won't get it. It's true. It, it had some broad appeal. This this first appeared in a comic called uh, Fox and Crow, I believe, uh, which yes. was a funny animal comic at the time. But that also Fox and Crow, if you read that, uh, that also has a similar sort of cross appeal, although it probably is more kid oriented. Arnold Drake really brought this comic into a place where older kids, if not uh, necessarily college-age kids would read it, and eventually Stanley and his monster also took over Fox and Crow, became its own comic in the last, I don't remember, half dozen or five Yeah, not years. very long, but yeah. Yeah, not for too long, but you know, it definitely had taken over the whole thing, and, and I think that's just more showing how comics were changing and fandom was changing. With Stanley and his monster, there's a little bit, it's something, I hate to use the word sinister, but there is something just a little off. Yeah, it's, it's like a this. monster is sort of like, you know, has fooled a child and is and is telling him to keep him a secret. You know, like, yeah. it's sort of, it's sort of. <laughs> Yo, and you come to find out that the monster was actually kicked out of hell. 
Oh yeah, for, that would happen to the end. Yeah. So you know, yeah, he was kicked out of hell for refusing to be evil. So wow. uh, he was using Stanley's home as a like a safe haven from returning to hell. I think that should be his tagline: "Not evil enough for hell." <laughs> yes, but he he was brought back briefly as the file clerk for hell. Oh well, that's nice. At least I yeah. some kind of work. See, well, going back to his uh, screenplay uh, uh, endeavors, he also wrote a screenplay for a body film called "Who Killed Teddy Bear." Yeah. In 1965. Now this is uh, this is weird. You know, I I wasn't around at the time, but uh, this oh, one no. just seems no, no, I, I missed it. <laughs> but it just seems like a uh, like an overly mature type of movie for the for the day. And yeah. I could be I could be talking out my ass here, but I mean, it just this is a, a disco hostess is threatened and, har- and harassed by an obscene phone call, uh, like a stalker. And uh, she hires a private investigator and winds up falling in love with him. But uh, the themes that it explores are uh, are rape, lesbianism, and sexual sadism. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't figure that that'd be, you know, just boilerplate. Well, you know, there's been a long tradition in uh, movies going back to at least the 50s, if not earlier, mm-hmm. of stag films. Uh, I remember I used to watch some of them as a kid because uh, they used to be on this uh, uh, video label called Something Weird. You ever hear of these guys? Yes. So they, they would have some of these stag films, and it was often like the most contrived shit, like, oh, I don't know, like, you know, Naughty Secretary and, you know, uh, Hotel Confidential. And it was often just scenes of women topless doing jumping jacks, that kind of thing. Now, not, it wasn't, well, I wouldn't call it hardcore pornographic. You saw nothing below the waist, but everything was suggestive. All the dialogue was suggestive, and, you know, they would, they would explore different uh, sexual acts and positions in their kind of uh, hands-off 50s way. So I suspect, and I haven't seen this movie in either of you, no. but I, I suspect that's what this was. This was a stag film or something that would actually show in the, what would be, you know, there was no X rating like, at the time, but what would like be Like the midnight movie. Oh, yeah, and it, the midnight movie or the adult theater or something. I mean, in a way, I bet this was a burgeoning in- industry that would eventually become what we know as 1970s Times Square. But, yeah. Uh, you, know, it, you know, he didn't, but it does show that he can tackle the kid stuff. He can tackle the adult stuff. You know, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't uh, you know pigeonholed into one genre, one type of thing, even one medium. Um, I, I've looked up this movie. Something weird, I think, did release. Somebody's released it. Uh, copies of it go on Amazon for ninety nine bucks. Oy. So I don't know if I'll ever see it at that price, huh. but I would like to someday. Yeah, absolutely. So you know we. we Obviously, we've illustrated Arnold Drake as a really uh, interesting guy with a with boundless creativity and uh, able to work in several different forms of media, but he also had a political side. Uh, he did. Right around 1965, right around when, uh, or maybe 64, when Who Killed Teddy Bear came out, there was an attempt to unionize. Uh, initially, Arnold Drake uh, and Bob Haney formed a group that wanted better pay for freelance writers. Uh, at that time, artists were making thirty to forty dollars a page, which you've uh, worked out to be two hundred and fifty dollars and seventy-two dollars today per page. Um, yeah, that that information, by the way, for the dollars comes from the Titans Companion and Tomorrow's Publishing. Excuse me. So they were doing very well. The artists, um, you know, uh, Chris and I had a little discussion before the show of. How that you know may have had to be break broken out, and don't forget that artists had to pay for all their own materials. So you know some of it went to that, but still, I don't think they were even coming close. I mean, I believe writers made something on the order of twenty five 
you know, per issue. Mm. You know, yeah, like, yeah, for the not, for, not for, for page eight, for eight for eight pages, you know, for everything, you know, like whatever the full the full book, you might get thirty bucks. So, uh, you know, there, there was definitely a huge disparity. Uh, although, uh, considering the source, this could be Earth Haney dollars. We're not sure. Yes, if we don't know what continuity this, these dollars are in. Because yeah, you have to think about it. That means that in today's money, somebody doing an eight page story in a comic book, which would have been normal, uh, it's making two grand. It's making two grand per per thing. That's that's pretty good even today, you know. Absolutely. Like, you know, but maybe maybe not. Maybe we're wrong. I don't know. I, I wasn't there. So, uh, but whatever it was, they felt that writers were getting the short end. There was a disparity. Yeah. yeah, and and they felt they should get more. So they they came up with a good solution, didn't they? Yeah, they uh, <laughs> when they went in and uh, stomped their foot, they were offered one dollar more per page, but. That dollar would have to be shared with every single writer. I mean, why don't they like, just kick these guys in the nuts? You know, that, that yeah, would, at that, that point. Be... <laughs> it's like you'd respect them more if they just told them to go screw off. Yeah. But, you know, here's, here's the dollar that, you know, this month Arnold Drake will get the dollar. Next month Bob Haney will get the dollar. Yeah. The month after that, Gordon Fox will get the dollar. It's just, uh. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a, it's, that's a real fuck you kind of answer, I think. Yeah, it's just such an insult. It's so, uh... And, uh, at the, uh, at the, after hearing, that uh, uh, Drake wanted to strike. Yeah, he wanted to go out on strike, and uh, Haney was with him, but he kind of waffled. Uh, he claimed that he was afraid that if he if they both walked, then that dollar would come off the table, yeah. and no one would get it. Which really so, uh, fuck that dollar, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. At that point, at that point, you'd figure that there'd be a brotherhood of writers being like, you know what, DC, you must need the money more than we do. Yeah. Um, where. Uh, Haney, he, he claimed that, you know, I, and, you know, this is all secondhand. So he said that he wanted to make sure that he didn't ruin it for the other writers. So he did not strike. And uh, it turned out that Drake didn't strike either, but he kind of painted that, that that little target he had on his back now became a big target. Yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger now. And uh, it seems that uh, this is all conjecture here from, from various interviews I read, but Ever since this point, Drake minimized Haney's role and contribution in creating the Doom Patrol. It's true. Uh, you know, it's we. You know, he's never denied that they spent that initial weekend coming mm. up with the with the crew, but he definitely made it seem like Bob Haney just kind of batted around a couple of ideas. We, we'll never, yeah, never he was know. just along for the ride. Yeah. There's definitely, you know, there's definitely characters in the Doom Patrol, especially the Animal, Vegetable, Mineral Man, mm. which seems to come right out of Bob Haney's brain. It's like his oh, yeah. metamorpho. Esque type character himself, but again, it's all conjecture. We we're not sure uh, mm. exactly what happened there. Uh, after that, though, uh, Arnold Drake's cause celeb was to get health insurance for all comics creators, which you really got to think about how forward thinking this is because uh, not every company provided health insurance. That was not a normal no. thing in the 60s, was to get health insurance as part of your pay. So even to have that, uh, to ask for that as a freelancer was really. Forward thinking. It's it's yeah. it's it maybe interesting to know though that actually Arnold Drake did have health insurance through the company at that time, but he had to pay out of pocket. Sure. But he paid the corporate rate and he did it in order to get his daughter Pamela braces, uh, mm -hmm. which is a weird little story I read years ago <laughs> on, on Pamela's uh, Facebook page. Um, but he wanted it for everybody and and felt that that they should at least be getting uh, the corporate rate because as anybody that has to pay health insurance themselves themselves know. It's way too expensive, and it was way yeah. too expensive then too. You, it's almost impossible to just do it by yourself. You need you need uh, a group rate of some. You kind. need the kick in, yeah. 
So uh, he tried to assemble up a crew, and he was only able to assemble writers, writers but none of the artists would take part, probably because they were making, you know, the equivalent <laughs> of $50 money. a page. They were like, we're good, bro. bro. You know, <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, Carmen Infantino was approached, but he didn't join, uh, as written in Carmen Infantino, penciler, publisher, provocateur. Mm-hmm. And Jack Leibowitz, DC Comics publisher, told him that if he could get Marvel on board with the union, he would sign up. And that's fascinating that he was willing to do that. I'm sure he. I'm sure he was talking to whoever was running Marvel at the time, and uh, I think they knew where the. I think they knew where uh, where the line was drawn. Oh, yeah, I, I also think you know he's, he was he was playing a pretty safe gamble that Marvel was not going yeah. to want to do that because they both had the same uh, type of profit margin. Marvels at that time would have actually been a lot lower. Sure. They did not want to start unionizing and start paying uh, union wages. But, you know, just to even have said that, although in a way I guess that's sort of like the everyone shares a dollar. Sort of a yeah. fuck you answer. Like, you know, uh, Arnold Drake did contact Marvel. They said, told him the same thing. You know, DC's got to, if DC joins, we'll join. So that sort of stalled out the whole uh, thing. Uh, that was also from Carmen Infantino's book. Uh, and he felt that they were they were enjoying pushing his buttons, which... It sounds yeah. like they were really screwing around with these Just guys. Just sending them on a wild goose chase. You know, writers yeah. didn't get a lot of respect uh, in general at that time. Uh, no, they were just key pushes as well. Freelancers in general didn't get respect, but especially writers. You know, the artists sometimes could be sought after. Carmen Infantino would have been one of them, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, and this is interesting uh, to just to bring up, that Neil Adams pushed for this later on in the set in 1970s and uh, also got publishers to return artists original work which was amazing to think about because yeah. I don't think I don't think it had even occurred to the publishers before that to return this original artwork that this belonged to somebody except for <laughs> no. them you know uh, yeah, and that, that it had an actual had an actual monetary value to it. Sure. On the on the you know on the fan circuit or in the collector circuit. That there was just... that there was a secondary market now that didn't exist. Yeah. That didn't exist ten years before. So, in some ways you can't fault them, but in other ways, you know, it's missing a sign of the times. Definitely is. It's it's they're out of stuff. And you know the way Neil Adams describes it is that at that time all the art like. There was just a, you know rooms full of artwork bulging out of desks, you know falling yep. down from from files. People threw it out. People walked all over it. They didn't give a shit. It was just so much of it. You think they would have wanted to get rid of it? And uh, yeah, I mean now yeah, both companies have dedicated art de- art return departments, and they make sure they keep everything nice and above board. Yeah, and a lot of the pencilers have they've got agents and agencies that oversee the sale of their original work. That's right. Yeah. So it's just uh, it's amazing how that. Uh, how that wasn't even a thought, and then it, uh, it's its own its its own entity now. Absolutely. There are some original pages I wouldn't mind having myself. Oh, certainly. So uh, I'm going to talk about another creation of Arnold Drake's Dead Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody you still see in the DCU today quite a bit in the dark titles. He's actually featured in uh, Constantine Hellblazer right now, Yep. Uh, if anyone cares. <laughs> uh, he, this was a fascinating character, though, because he, he sort of has been taken away from his original roots. He was really uh, a Buddhist. He had a, a, a Zen Buddhist concept, you know, of reincarnation, mm-hmm. of uh, meditation, of, of transcendentalism. Uh, it's kind of sort of in, invoked the movement, the general movement towards uh, Asian rituals and Eastern philosophies. Yeah, very, very like uh, I think it was John Lennon at the time who was uh, who was really. Exploring that, for sure. Uh, you know, they, they went to meet with the uh, the oh God, what's his name? Chairman Mao. 
No, they didn't even, they didn't even <laughs> do a Chairman Mao. They met with the, the Bajaresh. My parents would kill me for not remembering this guy. <laughs> but he, he was he was a uh, a Hindu prophet, I believe, or a Hindu <laughs> guy. Uh, and they learned uh, some meditation techniques. Uh, you know, the whole culture was sort of turning this way, uh, turning away from Western world, Western medicine, and uh, embracing ancient Eastern philosophies and techniques to, for better or for ill, but, you know, Arnold Drake, the important part is he saw that. Mm-hmm. He saw that there was a market here, that there was something that was not being, uh, you know, tapped into it was, by DC. And, and It was Mahar, Maharishi Mahesh. Okay, there you go. See, I, I would have gotten it wrong anyway, so I'm very glad you looked that up. Uh, <laughs> but they sat with him, and that, that's that's really where they turned into the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band type sure. guys. So they moved away from I Want to Hold Your Hand and that, those type of... Uh, songs they became much more orchestral and 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 psychedelic and heavy and you know did did their dope and you know i mean you know you go on and on talking about psychedelic culture but you know the 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 point is marvel did have a book to to uh, approach this group and that was dr strange dr strange yeah uh, which was in i believe was that in uh strange tales right i think so yes uh that was so strange was the wussy thing and they'd have a backup um, and if you read those early Ditko, Doctor Strange, they are as psychedelic as any. They are out there. Grateful Dead poster you'll ever see in your life. I mean, they are yeah. unbelievable. Uh, long before the Acid Culture, too. I think that was '65 that that debuted. Hmm. So, and and the, the fact that Steve Ditko made them is amazing because here's a guy I don't think has even ever really been drunk. No, he's very straight laced. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he he saw something and sort of Arnold Drake. Um, you know, he was unhappy where Dead Man, with, with what happened to Dead Man, how he just became a superhero whose power was to enter anyone's body, yeah. which essentially is what he is now. I think he intended it for him to be a little bit more, to bring a little bit more of Buddhism or Eastern uh, culture, I want to say, because not religion really, but philosophy. Philosophy yeah. is the word, yeah. Uh, wanted to bring more of that into the story, and it just never really happened. I mean, he goes to Nanda Parbat, which is a DC's phony Tibet. You know? Yeah, it's uh, it's where uh, where if if Iron Fist was in in DC, that's where he'd hang that's out. That's where he would hang out exactly. <laughs> so that went along, and it's that's still uh, that's still around. Costume was designed by Carmen Infantino to look almost like the Flash, but different. But different. And, and I'd say that, that that about sums it up. To be honest, with Dead Man, that's pretty much what his costume looks like. Yeah, it's very uh, it's very iconic, which is definitely a hallmark of uh, Carmen Infantino. It's just uh, he just. He just had it. Yeah. <laughs> Where uh, every every costume he put on was just you know something that uh, that Alex Ross was gonna paint several years later. For sure, he just had he had the touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, brings us to the end of this part with uh, the end of the Doom Patrol themselves. Yeah. Uh, as as we said earlier, the, my greatest adventure is retitled as Doom Patrol, and that it ends with issue number one hundred twenty-one in us. Uh, it was a, I guess it was bi-monthly at that point because it's listed as September or October 1968. Yeah, I, I believe I believe it, it was at that point. And if, if you do the math, because it's important to say that it was numbered 121, but they just continued the numbering from My Greatest Adventure. From My Greatest Adventure. So yeah. 80, so that's like 40 issues that wouldn't necessarily have filled up uh, the full amount of time, the full five yeah. years, unless you'd go bi-monthly. Yeah, and the book ended with the apparent death of the entire team. Yeah. They uh, they were on a they were in a small uh, was it they were in Maine right in a yeah. small fishing town yep and uh, I think they they sacrificed their lives to save what was it, like eight people 
Yeah, like the it, whole town it, was eight exactly. people. The whole town was eight people, and uh, oh god, what's his name? General Mortis. Immortus. Uh, yeah. Essentially, tells them. I mean, it's it's almost like one of these stupid questions <laughs> you asked when you were a kid. You know, would you rather uh, put your hand in a toaster or would you rather electrocute yourself? Uh, he says, uh, you know, either you die or they die. Period. He's got a nuclear missile that can go either way. So make your choice. And the Doom Patrol nobly and you know heroically. Decides that they want to die, which you really gotta, you really gotta think about this. Superheroes dying yeah. in a comic book. I, I don't know that had happened since the forties at that point. Sure, unless, if, yeah. unless it was an imaginary story. This is before Gwen Stacy's death. This is before you know all those other Marvel deaths. Here it is. You, you the titular characters of this comic book have ceased to exist. Yeah, and, and next uh, next month the book ain't coming out. Exactly, and, and that was you <laughs> know. There's no funeral for our friends. It's, uh, it's just done. No, no Doom um, Patrol armbands, which actually I would love. No. I would love yes, that. that would be awesome. But uh, they did leave the door open because uh, much like uh, our 900 number deal we talked about a few weeks ago, yeah. the uh, the fans were offered a vote in the letters page of this final issue to write in saying whether or not the Doom Patrol stayed dead. And... Uh, I guess uh, nobody really. I, I, I think that even more than the 900 number, though, uh, considering that Arnold Drake had become kind of a persona non grata around DC yeah. at that time, and they were about to make a big change, uh, bringing in guys like Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill, that there was no. It didn't matter if, unless there had 100,000 letters came in, yeah. they weren't going to bring this thing back. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. uh, he was edited out of the final issue. Uh, yeah, because the whole issue is kind of framed with uh, with the creative team, like actually in the book, yeah. saying, hey, write in. And uh, they edited uh, Arnold Drake's image out. Yeah, it was supposed to be Drake and Premiani. And their edit. And was you. it uh, also Murray, right? Well, no, originally it was just Drake and, and, and oh, okay. Premiani, but they edited Drake out and they put Murray in. That's where they put Murray Bolton off. So that shows how much he had been excised from DC at that time that they were willing to edit the a page just to show that he wasn't there anymore it was kind of crazy like he gets credited so yeah uh, and that's where we're going to leave it this week folks because we have already talked a lot about Arnold Drake about the, <laughs> meat, the meat and cheese of his career as uh, Jim would probably put it uh, <laughs> fascinating guy did so much uh, in in a relatively brief amount, of, short amount of time. I mean, right now sure. in his life, he's in his forties. Yeah. And this is his, you know, hugest, most creative period, arguably. Uh, you can judge that for yourself when we talk about the rest of it next week. But uh, we'll be coming back with uh, his work in the seventies for other companies, as well as beyond comics, and uh, into his late life and up to his. Uh, expiration in 2007. During his time in DC, he uh, was somewhat of a revolutionary uh, creator. He uh, wanted he wanted benefits and higher pay for the writers, yeah. which made a already small, uh, an already large target on his back get just a little bit bigger. Definitely. And to the point where uh, his Doom Patrol comic was uh, canceled. We don't know if there's any uh, connection between the two. Probably not. But. Uh, the timing is, is is suspect. And he was definitely his his picture was cut out of the of the he was supposed to be on the last page of that issue. Or actually I'm sorry, on the first page. First page, yeah. Uh, he was supposed to be one of the creators begging the they were trying to get you to clap their hands so uh, Tinkerbell doesn't die. That's right. And so, uh, <laughs> it didn't work. Or maybe it did. we're not sure what happened there, but but the end of it definitely was that the Doom Patrol did not publish anymore. 
And right after that, pretty much, uh, Arnold Drake was fired, which in freelance terms means you simply do not get any more work. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I don't think there was ever a official declaration, and uh, as you'll see later, he did come back to work a little bit for DC, but decades later. We could check his Twitter timeline. That's right. <laughs> I wonder what he would be writing these days. If he was on Twitter, it would probably be all psychedelic weirdo shit. Probably. So, uh, but after that, you know, he, he was very well respected in the industry still, and he was able to get Marvel work immediately after that. Uh, he co-created the Guardians of the Galaxy with Gene Colan, uh, mm -hmm. but not the Guardians of the Galaxy you might be thinking of, not you, Chris, but the audience, which would be the one, one from the uh, movie with Rocket Raccoon and Groot and all those fun people. His Guardians was four guys uh, with different facets. It's, you know, it's... it's they were really, odd, yeah. And, you know, that was a really an unusual, almost poetic comic in the way it was written. Yes. I don't know if you ever, if you ever read the uh, first couple issues, but it has this weird narration that almost is, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, ethereal in its, in its creation. Uh, very strange, though. Very, very much, definitely uh, Arnold Drake style. He also wrote some X Men, mm -hmm. uh, created Havoc and Polaris, as well as the villain Mesmero. Mesmero, yes. Uh, he didn't write a ton for X Men, but in his short time, very you know, brief. Yeah, he, he gave he gave Scott Summers a brother. It was it was, uh, or you and, know, and Magneto a daughter. So it's interesting, uh, it's, and it's, it's something to think about today when when. People shy away from families. He was going towards it. Uh, right around that time, too, actually probably a little earlier, he wrote the title song for the film, We Are All Naked, a sexy art film featuring a nymphomaniac wife of a cuckolded husband living in a bunker along Normandy coastline. I've never seen the movie. I no. would love to see the movie. It sounds uh, sexy and interesting. but he... And amazing, yeah. So, so I mean, <laughs> here he's writing comics. He's writing music. He's writing screenplays. This guy is writing and uh, he didn't seem to starve too much for work, even going throughout the 70s. No, he, uh, he did some gold key work. And gold key comics, when I think of it, it's a lot of the licensed, sort of kid-oriented yeah. uh, comedy, silly, funny. Uh, and he did a, a stint on uh, Little Lulu, yep. which, uh, which goes to show, you know, he enjoyed writing comedy, or at least he was able to. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's kind of made evident when he did the uh, Bob Hope and the Jerry Lewis books. But uh, and even and even his early Doom Patrol is is at points really funny. Sure. Uh, there, there's a scene in in a later Doom Patrol book from the '60s I always think of that kind of evokes the whole uh, madcap uh, nature of the series. And I, I unfortunately I can't remember exactly why, but Beast Boy, Gar Logan, and his adoptive father Mento are in the Himalayans looking for the abominable snowman. Okay. And uh, they're, they're searching around, they're walking in blinding snow, and they see a guy face down in the snow wearing, you know, a parka, and they go to turn him over, and it's Alfred E. Newman. That's all. And that, that's the whole gag. Like, what what the hell, what was that about? You know, it's just in there for no reason. I'm so to pull he, out my showcases. Yeah, you should, should give it a look. It's, it's, it's got to be in the... Uh, Volume 2? It would be in volume two, yeah, towards the end. It's probably in the last mm, 10, 12 issues, somewhere in there. That's funny. But it's very weird. Little Lulu itself is kind of a weird property because she is a very devious, uh, pranking little girl, you know? She's, she's mm -hmm. sort of mean to her uh, suitor, Tubby. Tubby. Right? That's his name. Yeah, little Tubby with his sailor hat. So it, it allows, it's, it's, it's not just saccharine 
you know, little girls and boys sucking lollipops. There's a little bit of chicanery going on in there. Yeah, a little deviousness. Yeah, and I think that played well to his strengths. Certainly, certainly. He also and wrote uh, at least one issue of Welcome Back, Cotter, as yes. I know, for DC TV, which was, uh, I wonder, that must have been his, his return to DC there uh, about a decade later from when he stopped working for them. Maybe he wrote an inventory story of Welcome Back, Cotter in the 60s. You think so? You think so? <laughs> Even if he, he had could, that much foresight, he knew he that could, he, he was a very foresightful fellow. <laughs> he was. He, saw, he looked on the horizon and he saw sweat hogs. Yeah, he was like, "Oh, this is this is the world is going to be ready for this after the decline of the American city. It'll be uh, <laughs> it'll be perfect for such a show. So let me let me do it now." Absolutely. So after that, so he uh, joined the uh, Veterans Bedside Network, being a military man himself. Mm-hmm. And that was a group that entertained patients in the uh, in the VA hospitals, and uh, he got so involved with that network, he actually became the executive director in uh, 1981. Yeah, and uh, this is also something so interesting to me because now, you know, he's turning his talents to a whole different thing, a whole different uh, form of. Uh, Expression. I, I don't know the words I'm thinking of. You know, he's basically putting on little plays and 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 doing little stand up. And hey, still, do, it's still a creative endeavor, but it's just uh, aimed at a different audience. I mean, it, this guy talk about the hats that he wore, the many different Absolutely. hats. It's 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 incredible. And not long after that, right around uh, 1990, he started getting on the convention circuit. I believe he was actually pulled in by uh, editor Mark uh, Evanier, right? I think so. Yeah, he uh, he seemed to be. Uh, Close with a lot of the uh, the more seminal creators, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it Avenier or Avenier? Or I'm not sure, unfortunately. Because <laughs> I know he's a he's a you know a friend with Kirby. I, I think he he wrote a big thing on Steve Gerber when he passed away. I think he's just a uh, real tight with a lot of the uh, the older creators, and he and he's a he's a fine creator in his own right. For sure, and he, and you know he was very friendly with Bob Kane, and very friendly with Stan Lee, and knew Bill Finger. I mean, this is, you know, he came up through that whole pedigree, so he mm-hmm. probably knew them and many more people that we haven't even named because he didn't name them. I wouldn't be surprised if he knew all the EC guys and whatever at oh, the probably, same time. Probably, yeah, wouldn't surprise me at all. So he began going to comic conventions in 1990, and uh, that kind of brought him back out, uh, not to mention Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, mm-hmm. which began in 89, is that correct? In 1989, yeah, with believe, uh, number 19. I can't believe we don't have that here. So that, that had a whole lot to do with it. So there was a big interest in his work uh, throughout the 1990s. Um, more or less, I probably just spiked the prices of his comics because, uh, <laughs> so, so true. from what I know he didn't do any uh, any work until he did a 12 page story called Tripping Out in Heavy Metal Magazine in 2003 drawn by a classic uh, artist from the old Tales of the Unexpected and uh, House of Secrets and old western comics called Louise Dominguez hmm. uh, I've seen his artwork it's, it's one of these things if I showed you or if you look it up you'll be like oh yeah I've seen I've seen okay. his work you know it sort of has a shimmering um Hard to explain. It's sort of a shimmering, weird quality to it, but he definitely is a talented artist. And, you know, he, he was honest with making a comeback, you know. He was uh, well sought after, after uh, did this work for Heavy Metal. That This is where a lot of his interviews start coming up, That from whence, from where Chris and I got our information. He got very chatty he in did. the mid-2000s. Which is, which is a nice thing that, that, you know, people did think to talk to him before it was too late, but eventually... 
as it would have been too late as happens to all of us uh it was too late and on march 12 2007 just uh, about two weeks after his birthday he did die he was 83 years old uh he died of pneumonia apparently he caught it at new york comic-con of that year uh, mm. pe people noted that he was walking around seeming a little i guess pneumonomatic if that's such yeah. a word i don't know <laughs> pneumatic yeah, but uh you know he had walking pneumonia throughout new york, new york comic-con anyone has ever been and you know this this would have been obviously nine years ago but new york comic-con was getting was still pretty robust even then uh so you know it's it could be stressful i'm sure especially on an old Certainly. body to have that going around but however he lives on doesn't he Oh, yes, he has a long-lasting legacy here. Uh, luckily, before he passed, um, there's uh, something called the Bill Finger Award, mm -hmm. which uh, up till that point was only given to um, post, po was it post posthumously. Posthumously, that's the word. Yeah. It was only given posthumously. And uh, in 2005, Arnold Drake was the first living uh, member to get the recognition. Nice. Uh, and, okay. and, it's, and it's an award that's... Uh, it's given to creators that are judged to have not been given their their due while they were alive, um, which and is the a, fact that. Which, by ahead. the way, for for in case the audience doesn't know, which I'm sure they do, Bill Finger is the now credited co-creator of Batman. That for decades until this till last year, right? Yeah, just, uh, just it was just Bob Kane. So that that's kind of why he's the he's the name of that somebody that doesn't get the recognition. But it, it's still not an and. No, it, it's a with. It's weird, but. You know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's what we can get, yeah. So uh, yeah, so Arnold Drake in 2005 was uh, he was given this award while he was still alive, which is which is awesome. I think that's great. Yeah, and from that point on, every year one living and one dead recipient are awarded the uh, the honor. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking about Bill Finger here, uh, it seemed like a lot of uh, a lot of his interviews were very Bill Finger uh, directed <laughs> at that point. Yeah, and. Uh, he mentioned in a 2006 interview that he that he knew Bill Finger, but he actively avoided getting too close because he felt that they shared too many similar traits and would probably bring out the worst in each other. Yeah, it's, it's, that's that's a pretty interesting comment there. You know, Bill Finger, by accounts that I've read, you know, he had a bit of a drinking problem. He was not great with his family. He was a strange son, very yep. depressed. Uh, so. I think it's it's interesting that Arnold. Or he recognized it. He yeah. recognized it in another person. I guess you can always smell your own, right? That's but, a fact. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I think a lot of those those interviews were about Bill Finger because there was a big interest in Bill Finger right around 2005, mm -hmm. 2006. Uh, I maybe that was tied into the Batman Begins movie. I have no idea. It's possible. But it's it seems like right around then people started to more people woke up to the reality that you know Bob Kane did not. Not, did not act alone. Did not act alone, especially since his art changed. His art style changes drastically about <laughs> ten issues into the run and never returns. You know, you wonder what the hell happened there. Yeah, he, he took some classes. Arnold Drake also lives on in his extremely varied body of work. For sure. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, some people write good superheroes. Some people write good opera. Some people write good uh, romance. Some people write good everything. Yeah, it's, it's... Uh, and it just seems that uh, Mr. Drake was a was a total package. He could just do whatever was assigned, and whatever he was interested in. Absolutely, yeah. That, I mean, that, that's a key point. You know, he would take an assignment and he would do it to the best of his ability, and he could 
change his tack. He could write Challenge of the Unknown. He could write Bob Hope. And Tommy uh, Tomorrow. And Tommy Tomorrow, his, his least favorite, but he, he took the job. And, uh, you know, you can watch his movies. You can listen to his music. You can read his graphic novel uh, from yeah. the 1950. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like it's, you know, a, a real journeyman. Absolutely. And uh, let's see here. Just before he uh, had passed away, talking about Bill Finger finally getting his credit, um, Arnold Drake had actually written up contracts with DC to receive creative credit on his creations. You know, like how we have, uh, you know, Superman was created by, you know, yeah, Siegel and Schuster, and, and Bat- uh, Batman created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he was most interested in getting credit for Dead Man and Beast Boy. Interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I don't have any. Uh, I don't have any books to check whether or not that happened. But I did check an issue of the latest volume of Doom Patrol uh, right before Flashpoint, yeah. and he indeed did get credit. It, it shows, you know, the Doom Patrol created by Arnold Drake. I would bet he did. Now that I'm really thinking about it, you know, Dead Man was in the last issue of uh, Constantine the Hellblazer. And I'm pretty sure he did get credit on the front page. Oh, excellent. Page. I think it's interesting, though, that, you know, on Beast Boy, I think he knew, uh, you know, what was important in this world. You know, like, <laughs> yes. I want the guy on Teen Titans. On television. Go, Please. Yes. That's that's the one. If I don't get anything else, you can have Stanley and his monster. I want Beast Boy. <laughs> Maybe we can get credit for Stanley and his monster. Somebody needs it. Somebody should get it. <laughs> yeah, he said uh, it went. Uh, they went back and forth for about four months. Trying to get that uh, that credit, and DC finally uh, they finally agreed. That's great. Uh, like obviously, we don't know the finances of that, but I assume if any or who knows. Yeah, who who knows what the story is? But it's good that you know it is. He has a daughter, and I think his wife is still alive. I could be wrong about that. Hmm. Uh, that they get to share in some of his legacy because you know he was an incredible guy uh, who. Just wrote, you know, and 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 Chris and I have talked a lot about uh, prima donna creators these days, where yes. they, you know, they want to write a certain thing, and they're, you know, they they can only write a certain way, or they only write, you know, when on a Tuesday, or you know, whatever it is. This is not the attitude of Arnold Drake and the people of his era. No. You know, they they wanted to make a living writing, and that's they set about doing it. But period, uh, mm-hmm. there was no, you know, not necessarily pouring a lot of yourself. Into your work, uh, it was just work. It was work, you know. <laughs> recognizing that, and you know, he had his own projects. Obviously, I think certainly the Flesh Eaters, or you know, creating the Doom Patrol. The Flesh Eaters would have been his movie, and mm-hmm. the uh, that you know, I assume you know that something more of himself in there. But you know, when it's time to write Tommy tomorrow, you just write Tommy tomorrow. You sit and you down just, and you, you just get sing to the it. song and you're out. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he's 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 fascinated me now for several years and this is why Chris was very nice to allow us to do this long long history of Arnold Drake because he's someone that I've kind of uh, looked into a lot and, and Chris did incredible research work for this I, I have to really give a tip of the hat to you because oh. you uh, you know I, I gave you some bare bones stuff and you took it and ran with it and uh, it, was a lo- it was a lot of fun I, he uh, <laughs> he was a he was a treasure to the industry yeah and sure. uh, and you know uh, that Bill Finger Award, it, it makes so much sense because he—he's uh, not a guy that a lot of the casual fans would ever—it would never come up in conversation. Yeah. I mean, we're in an era now where I—I th- I think a lot of people think Stan Lee wrote and drew every Marvel comic. I think that's true. Yeah. And uh, and I think so, I think Stan Lee is okay with that. 
<laughs> this, is, this is very possible. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're in an age where Jack Kirby is sometimes left out of conversation, much less someone like Arnold Drake, who is responsible for so much. Um, I hate calling him a good hand because that's usually a dismissive term, but yeah. he is the very definition of a good hand. You know, it shouldn't be dismissive because, you know, the guy that comes, the reliable person that comes to work every day and submits usable stuff every time, to me, is worth more than a million Brian Hitches who can't get their act together to even fucking finish JLA. That reminds me, I just got about three or four cancellations from DCBS on, on the last three or four issues of that. Yeah, that, that, that is no more. So, I mean, you know, and that's, that's the landscape of modern comics. That's not the way it was, you know, the... In the, in the old days, it was about a deadline. Absolutely. Uh, Arnold Drake also, he lives on in his inspiration of other creators that we, whose work we still read today. Obviously, I think the top one we would mention would be Grant Morrison. Who, yes. Who did most like, you know, the best known run of Doom Patrol, without, without a doubt, that would be the one from 89 to... 93, is that right? It sounds about right. Right before Vertigo started. So yeah. Just, it, just like December of eight, 92, maybe. Pretty yeah. much between that and Sandman, and it, it invented Vertigo in a way, you know, kind of like that mm-hmm. was the reason that it had to exist. Uh, and definitely, you know, the, the wackiness, the, the, you know, involving disparate elements, the, the maintaining a kind of crazy continuity over the course of a, of a series. This is the kind of thing that uh, Arnold Drake excelled at at a time when it wasn't done. And I think yeah. I think Graham Morrison took a lot from that. Another guy that I've always I, I've thought ever since I started really getting into the Doom Patrol is uh, Marv Wolfman, because the new Teen Titans and now stay with me here, folks, is essentially the Doom Patrol with with a couple of sidekicks thrown thrown in. Uh, yeah, it was uh, basically a love letter <laughs> to the Doom Patrol. Absolutely, it was. Uh, you know, you got the Brotherhood of Evil where villain straight up you got beast boys right in there and his dad mento is in there so the connection is strong but starfire to me always seemed like a kind of variant on negative man you know cyborg is a sort of the same kind of a reluctant robot man uh the same kind of reluctance the same kind of annoyance at being you know locked in this metal body uh, no, almost to a T. I don't know if we could, you know, there may not be a Rita Farr, but frankly, she never really made a whole lot of sense anyway, as we talked about last week. Yes. Uh, you know, and it's something that when you start to see it, you realize, like, this is this is where he was going with it. Uh, and, and even the uh, second year of uh, new, the New Titans was, uh, it was the hunt for the Doom Patrol. They right. they're actually, you know, they, you have that striking cover where, uh, where they find Robot Man's body with a sign on it, where uh, it says anybody who passes here will die or something like that. This is this is it was Mento, right? It was uh, Mento looking for his wife, wasn't that? Wasn't that how it all kind of kicked off? Yeah, because I think story? the uh, the looking Mento helmet, yeah, the Mento helmet was driving him crazy. Yeah, and uh, they came across uh, they came across Robo Man's body. Yeah, I, I think that I think that was pretty much the big Doom Patrol reveal, though, as I remember it. Though we never we we never do get to get back together with Larry Trainer and the rest of them. But, not for a long, long time. Uh, not in there, you know, but uh, it, it does happen later on. Uh, obviously, Keith Giffen, anyone really injecting the, those kind of quips into comics have to t- take in big cues from guys like <laughs> Arnold Drake and Bob Haney and the wacky uh, writers of, the, of that era. Uh, oh, I, I mean, so, yeah. Ambush Bug, who later on would be on the Doom Patrol, but mm-hmm. the early Ambush Bug comics, I feel like, are total... Doom Patrol send-ups or that kind of like... Oh, yeah, they're a throwback, yeah. And just like how, how your comic can just take a turn in the middle of just like, all right, here's 
Here's uh, Alfred E. Newman, and here's uh, you know a <laughs> manga version of Ambush Bug for a page. How about that? Just have a good time. And here's the first few pages of Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man. Yeah, why not? You know, we'll just uh, little, uh, a little commentary on the industry. And I That's threw in, in the end, Neil Gaiman. Uh, sure. I've heard, him, I've heard him cite Arnold Drake as an influence. But, you know, even without that, without that, you can just see it coursing through his kind of, like, uh, story structure and his... his uh, willingness to use wacky things, you know, to get to get weird with it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think almost anywhere that you see a certain kind of weird comic, a self-referential comic, uh, you really got to tip it, tip your hat somewhat to Arnold Drake, or at least to one of the people that were inspired by Arnold Drake. One of, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you know, you see more and more of that today. I mean, a lot of these uh, comics are built on resuscitating some ancient property and breathing new modern life into it and having it be a cynical commentary on whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of Drake-ish, I think. You know, that sort of comes from the same template uh, of creating four reluctant superheroes who have to uh, exist in this modern world and, and, you know, deal with crazy villains like uh, Animal, Vegetable, Mineral Man or whatever else. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's like it's cynicism tempered with hope. I, I think I think that's fair to say, and it's also dubious enough that it's good enough for a Wonder Years episode. So I think we can leave it there. <laughs> um, I didn't mention in the beginning, by the way, if you want to go to the website and see all the great content at Weird Science DC Comics, that's at weirdsciencedccomics.com. But if you want to write to Chris and myself and tell us that we got everything wrong or tell us that uh, we're terrible or whatever you want to say or that we, you, you love the show... You can or, write if they, to, or if they want to really push us to do that uh, Stanley and his monster podcast. That's right. If you really want, if, <laughs> if, we, if we get twenty emails asking for Stanley and his monster, <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do a special <laughs> Stanley and his monster podcast. Uh, you can write to Weird Science DC Comics blog at gmail dot com. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. And of course, I say every week you got to go check out Chris on InfiniteEarths.com. Uh, you know, last couple of weeks I've actually cut my long-winded yapping about your blog, so I won't <laughs> I won't bother doing it this week because I think this probably went long enough. But check it out. There's great content there every day. Uh, I recently did a review of Booster Gold number one that got uh, mm-hmm. good play from Dan Jurgens, and uh, he's got the Sovereign Seven up there, which probably won't get a lot of good play. But nope. check it out anyway. <laughs> and uh, from here at the Weird Comics, Weird Science DC Comic Studios, uh, we wish you all a good week. Do you have anything else there, Chris? I'm uh, from a beautiful downtown Burbank. We'll uh, catch you next week. <laughs> and good night, Mrs. Calabash, <laughs> wherever you are.